first way that we stand firm in the gospel, knowing the Lord Jesus will triumphantly be returned, is that we do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You see this in verses 1 through 3. See, here's what's happening for the church in Thessalonica as Paul is writing to them. They had been gripped by hope. The message of a king greater than Caesar and of a kingdom greater than Rome. This king was Jesus who offered peace and life everlasting that Caesar could not offer. This kingdom was the kingdom of Christ, one of everlasting joy and perfect peace. Yet, the church in Thessalonica faced regular assaults upon their hope. Their fellow citizens of Thessalonica did not take well to these professions of a king and a kingdom that were greater than Caesar and Rome. So they turned up the fires of persecution upon the church in their day. This is one of the big reasons why Paul is writing this letter to the church, to strengthen them in the face of persecution. Yet, in spite of suffering persecution as followers of Christ, the church in Thessalonica was marked by joyful, humble obedience to Christ, walking in hope in their King. But not only hope in Christ and what He had done in His life, in His death on the cross, His resurrection, and all of these things that were meant for them as followers of His, but they walked in hope that Christ would one day return for them again. And they believed that Christ returned for His church. The coming day of the Lord, as it is referred to in Scripture, they believed that it would be soon. So, knowing that if they gave their lives in persecution, they would be united with their Lord, they faced this assault upon their hope in the form of being deceived into believing that Jesus, the precious Lord whom they were waiting on uh, uh, with, with clenched uh, uh, fists, clinging to Christ in the midst of suffering. They believed that He had, or they had heard message that He had returned, and they had missed it. Consider how their hearts would be ripped out, believing Christ alone who is their hope amidst the burning fires of persecution, Christ alone whose return they yearned for, had they missed it. You see, Paul addresses this in verses 1 and 2. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our being to gather together to Him. We ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the coming of the day of the Lord has come. Imagine these Christians gathering together for worship, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, gathering and singing, gathering and rejoicing in the grace of God and the Gospel. And yet they would talk before and after service. Hey, do you think the Lord Jesus is going to return for us soon? Why, yes, I think it could be this week. Maybe this month. You know, my family and I, we were looking at possibly taking a vacation a few months from now, but Jesus will probably have come back by then. And so their hope was grounded in a seeming sense that the Lord Jesus was coming at any moment. Some undoubtedly were saying, I cannot wait to see the Lord. This suffering for Christ has been so difficult. In Thessalonica, it is so hard to be a Christian. Oh, how I long to see the face of our King Jesus. 
And so with that understood, you can, under, you can see why it would be so dismaying to hear from other perceived spiritual authorities that Christ had returned and the church had missed it. See, Paul warned the church against this. Even if, in the, in the latter part of verse 2, even if you receive a letter that appears to be from me saying so, do not be deceived. I don't know if people were... Uh, there were counterfeit letters of Paul that were being spread around. You, you, if you were to survey the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you would find in a number of them that uh, oftentimes he dictated the letter to a, a co-laborer who would write down what he was saying, but then at the end he would say, I write this in my own hands. So as to be an autograph of authenticity. But 2,000 years removed from when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica, we don't struggle with a fear that we have missed the return of Christ, do we? If I asked each of us to write out or to list the 15 things that worried us most over the past week, I don't think any of us, myself included, would write, I worried, there was about a 12-hour span between Tuesday and Wednesday when I was convinced that I missed the return of Christ. None of us deal in that today. We know the unyielding march of time. Our history books tell us 2,000 years of the churn of history since the days of the New Testament. Life barreling along. You get up every morning. You drink your coffee. You get ready. You go to work. You do your thing at work. You get home. You unwind. Maybe you pay a few bills. You have dinner. You fall in bed, all to begin the next day again. Over and over and over and over. Church family, we don't face the threat of a deception that we've missed the return of Christ. We face the challenge of disinterest or even disbelief in the possibility of a return of Christ. Some of us perhaps worry or wonder, hey, if I start talking to others about Jesus Christ returning... They're going to look at me as if I'm wearing a tinfoil hat on my head and reading all the latest news events in light of perhaps maybe this is how I can interpret when Christ is going to in fact be back. Now, as I speak of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, if this seems a little odd to you for the church, for Christianity, I mentioned what are the things that people worried about this week, and none of us listed that. Perhaps none of us expected, or or perhaps many of us expected, that this would not be something that we would discuss in our sermon today. What we have to best understand to understand this passage, to understand the church in Thessalonica, and also to understand how this works with our hearts, is we have to understand the significance that this has to the church, to Christians. And the only way we will do so is that we must see the role that hope plays in the Christian life. The Christian life, the Christian faith, is not like an insurance policy, waiting in the background, sure you keep important policy details up to date, regularly updating them every six months, every year, but in reality you hope that you never have to call upon or cash in on that insurance policy. You want life to be as smooth as possible so that you don't have to break glass in case of emergency. And yet, Christianity, it's there if things go awry. No, the Christian faith, Christian hope is grounded in the reality of an anticipated arrival of His King 
of a king. And it's grounded in this arrival of the king and his resurrecting power racing through his people, his church, across creation as it is brought to its ultimate everlasting joy in seeing the face of King Jesus. And knowing that in him, all of our tears will be wiped away. Anticipating a king who would wipe away their tears was a vivid reality for a church in Thessalonica that perhaps saw their worship numbers dwindling. Not because Christians were moving away, but because their brothers and sisters were being killed for the faith. I suppose there's a word here for us to carefully consider we're going to receive this exhortation, do not be deceived. Now we're going to get into in a moment what we can believe so so we're not deceived, but just this initial exhortation, do not be deceived, there's an exhortation for us to give careful consideration to the voices that we listen to, the voices that we place knowingly or unknowingly in authority over our hearts. Preachers or teachers that we read their books, we listen to their sermons, we watch them on YouTube. We would be wise to ask ourselves, does their platform grow? Do they increase in income by getting people riled up about current events, convincing themselves and convincing all their hearers that this world is going to hell in a handbasket? In some ways, they might be right, but in other ways, they are not ministering to the church appropriately because the promised return of Christ, as Paul shows us, is not something that pokes and aggravates at us in order to stir us up to division. The promised return of Christ is the pillow upon which we lay our tired heads each night, and it is the strength by which we roll out of bed once again each morning full of hope in Christ. Not hope in our own strength that we can tackle the challenges that lay before us that day, but hope in the strength of a king who did not roll out of bed, but who walked out of a tomb. So the danger for us is to not be deceived. The lion's share of us face the danger of minimizing the return of Christ to a point where it's just out there. Another possibility of good news, but with no greater significance than the good news of possibly a pleasing 10 to 14 day weather forecast that may happen, may not. No, we await the return of our Lord and King. We yearn for, we even pray for the day when all the desires of our heart will find their perfect fulfillment in His gracious smile and warm embrace. And this is where we must pause. If you are not, for whatever reason, giving thought to or consideration to the coming return of Jesus Christ for His church, for Christians... Let me ask you, does the idea of a king who would return, who would wipe the tears from your eye, who would answer the deepest questions of your heart, who would satisfy the longings that cannot be satisfied, that you have found cannot be satisfied elsewhere, does that in the very least appeal to you slightly? If so, give consideration to this king and to what God would say to us in his word. So we all face the exhortation, do not be deceived. We pray for His return. We pray it would be soon. But as we hear this warning to not be deceived, we must secondly hear the exhortation that as we wait, we must not be impatient. So do not be deceived. In verse 3, the second part of verse 3 through verse 12, 
Do not be impatient. Paul next pivots towards a desire for the church to, even as there is much information that they do not have, he wants them to have this information that he will give to them in order that they may wait well. If you scroll through these verses, verses, you can see that we can know what must transpire until the return of Christ. You see verse 3, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and a man of lawlessness is revealed. Elsewhere, this man of lawlessness, elsewhere in the Scriptures, is referred to as the Antichrist. We see in verse 4 that he will try to make himself like a god, but as verse 6 shows us, he is currently being restrained, though we don't know by whom or by what. But eventually the lawless one will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will kill him at his coming. As verse 8 says. That's pretty simple, right? No questions. We can move on. Sounds easy enough. Actually, Truth demands us to acknowledge that many scholars believe this is perhaps the most difficult to understand section of any of the Apostle Paul's writings. So what do we make of it? Well, in the midst of the difficulty of it, with humility, we understand that God would have a word for us. You read verse 4, the man of lawlessness, this one who he says exalts himself in the temple of God, This would have resonated more clearly in Paul's day than ours. Paul uses much of the same language as the old prophecy was largely fulfilled in 169 B.C., over 200 years before Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, when a Syrian ruler or a Syrian governor named Antiochus took over the Jewish temple. He sacrificed pigs in the temple. He slaughtered Jews, and he thought of himself like God. And so it seems to be, well, there's the fulfillment of that prophecy from Daniel, but not so fast. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus restated this same prophecy. Well, okay, Jesus restated it and indicated that it would happen, saying it was thus yet largely unfulfilled. But between Jesus saying it and only 10 to 12 years before Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, the Roman emperor Caligula did a similar thing. He made a move on the Jewish temple. He proclaimed himself to be God. He began to order that worshipers worship him as God. And yet everyone knew that this came to a spectacular end when he was assassinated in around 40 AD. Yet Paul here says that this prophecy still must be fulfilled. Do you see the need for patience on the part of the church? You could fast forward past the days of Scripture beyond uh, uh, Antiochus or Caligula, other Roman emperors, the prophet Muhammad thought by some to be a man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. Occasionally throughout uh, medieval history and into Reformation days, corrupt popes were accused of being the Antichrist. Perhaps my favorite historical nugget on this in regards to who this man of lawlessness is, is in the 13th century, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX each decided that the other one was the Antichrist. And these and other prognostications have always been wrong when seeking to identify the Antichrist. So what do we do with this? How do we interpret what Paul is saying here? I think history demands, and Scripture will demand, we'll see it in a moment, that we don't take this out and then take out the latest news headlines and try and compare and contrast and see who meets the job description of this role so as to be able to anticipate when the return of Christ will be. 
But no, a few other places in Scripture are incredibly valuable in helping us to understand what is meant by a man of lawlessness or antichrist. For instance, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle John wrote of the Antichrist who had come, but he also mentioned Antichrists that were already tormenting the church. They were tormenting the church not by physical threats, but by denying and opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, in Revelation 13 and 14, the Antichrist is mentioned as a metaphorical beast who destroys, persecutes, and wreaks havoc upon the church But then, John in Revelation writes that this Antichrist receives a fatal wound and then lives and continues to torment the church. Catch that? A fatal wound, but then lives and continues to torment the church. How does something receive a fatal wound but keep coming back? Well, I think what we see in Scripture is that Antichrists die But their master, Satan, keeps on raising new ones. Antiochus, Caligula, the Roman Empire, they are all dead. But the spirit of the Antichrist continues to revive and torment Christ's church. And so what we must do as we see this and we accept the lot of life, lot in life for the church walking in obedience to Christ and see Paul's call in these verses towards a long obedience. Towards understanding that the Christian life walking towards our Lord Jesus Christ and anticipating His return, though we pray that it would be even today, it is a marathon, not a sprint. Now, we don't just hear an exhortation towards patient waiting on Christ because there's nothing else to do. But actually, we hear this exhortation because in waiting for the return of Christ, this is a means of survival amidst the ways that Satan would seek to wreak havoc upon the church. So if the Antichrist is, is, or Antichrists that arise are not a particular person alone, but are works of Satan seeking to lead the church to worship and trust the one who would seek to remove God's throne. Remember back verse 4? This one who would would take root in the, the throne and would seek to make himself God? How does he do this? Well, verses 10 through 12 show us he does this by making truth detestable and deniable. In fact, look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, with false signs, with wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There is a form of Christianity, of spirituality, religiosity that is personally fulfilling. It checks all the boxes. Compassion to the needy? Check. Low cost in regards to demands placed upon you? Check. In some ways, perhaps even trendy and fitting in to what you are looking for to fill that void in your life? Check. But the danger is that Paul sees and that we must understand is the possibility of embracing a false Christ, a false Christianity that lacks truth, and it is revealed in lacking truth by not demanding that Christ take total control of one's life. That they submit themselves under the Word of Christ. That they take up their metaphorical cross and follow Christ. A Christianity that simply helps someone reach their most ideal form of themselves is not Christianity at all. It belongs in the back pages of self-help books. 
Not the words of Christ that calls all who would follow Him to die to themselves and find life in Him. Do you see that interesting line? They refuse to love the truth, as verse 10 says. It's not that they refuse to acknowledge or even embrace the truth. It's that they refuse to love the truth. There was a love greater, uh, greater than that of the truth that dominated their hearts. But don't take my word for it or even Paul's word. Take Jesus' words. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells His audience something fascinating as they struggle to follow Him. He tells them, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Diagnosing the human heart, Jesus recognizes and Paul knows that it's possible that you can sit here regularly or even over the course of years and hear the Word of God. You can hear the Gospel over and over and over and over. Perhaps in your mind, accepting some parts that sound appealing, but denying the parts that sound too difficult. And you can hear this over and over and over. And subconsciously decide you do not want it. You will ignore it. You will protest with your disagreements with it. But in your hard-heartedness, you reject the truth. And we must see the warning of this. Do you allow your rejecting of and scoffing at the truth to be the means by which God justly blinds you to the truth? You see that in verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. If you have not yet become a Christian and a hang-up that forbids you from doing so, is your difficulty stomaching the claims of Christ, the demands that following Christ will put on your life, I urge you to do not wait until you have all the answers that you want. What you do is you recognize that you come to Christ in faith and you recognize that in Him are all the answers that you need. When you recognize that He has all that you need, then you come to Him submitting under the truth of who He is, what He has revealed in His Word, and when the answers that, uh, that He gives we find to be hard or difficult to stomach, we find in Him a refuge that is safe in the storm even as Antichrist seeks to torment you for following Him. Now, you might say, okay, hold on a second. I get this idea of preparing for a long obedience. A, 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 a resolve to trust in the coming of Christ when He will. But we see verse 9, this coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, with false signs, with wonder, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. I think what this reveals is that, that there are many who believe themselves to be worshipers of God, believe themselves to be servants of God, even perhaps are gathered either in this church or in other churches at this hour, week by week, year by year, and yet they have been sold a lie because they deny the truth of who Christ is and what He has done. Maybe they've seen great miracles. Maybe they've seen intellectual satisfaction to the questions of their heart. But in the temple of their heart, they are not worshiping King Jesus. They are worshiping one who looks like and talks like Jesus as they would expect Him to do. But He is not Jesus. He offers a life of ease. A life of comfortable faith. A life of low-cost faith. A life of culturally palatable faith. 
What he offers you is a faith that has the name of Christ, but not the heart of Christ and not the mission of Christ. Now, perhaps you're in the other boat and you've, you're a weary Christian. You're a worn out Christian. You say, yes, Stephen, the, the life of following Christ is a long obedience. Yeah, I know that. It's been very long for me. The danger that we see is in trying to run the race in a manner where we are fueled by something other than the Word of Christ. I've been to the marathon a time or two, not to run it, to watch it. You'll never see me running the Boston Marathon. But what I have noticed as I've watched the running of the marathon is that at the tables where runners run by and get their refreshments, they don't have carbonated drinks, they don't have Red Bull, they don't have five-hour energy. What do they have? Water. Water. Perhaps your background in regards to Christianity or in regards to what you thought you understood in regards to following Christ is sprint as hard and as fast as you can. And yet, you know that as you run, you eventually tire. You're trying to run the race on Red Bull. Seeking miracles, seeking impressive signs, seeking great conquests. Seeking a faith that is not the one revealed in here that is fueled by the living water of Jesus Christ. Satan would try to give you Red Bull to drink as you run the marathon of the Christian life, knowing that spiritual highs today that are divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ lead to terrible crashes and burns tomorrow as you are further down the course. And so how do we run the race, drinking the living water, not the Red Bull, the lies of all power, false signs, wonders, and wicked deception? Well, third, we do not be moved. Verses 13 to 17, do not be moved. If you read verse 13, you find a spectacular gift that helps the Christian to navigate a dicey future. What is the best thing that Paul says the Christian can have to navigate a dicey, tricky, treacherous, uncertain future? It is clarity about your past. Do you see that? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. This is in verse 13, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits, or some translations say, from the beginning, to be saved through sanctification, or you could say for sanctification, being set apart by the Spirit for belief in truth. Paul stretches the horizons for the church in Thessalonica to understand that their horizons go all the way from eternity past to eternity future. And he shows them that their, their future is secured even as they fear they may miss the return of Christ, not because they have all the answers, but because they are tied by faith to the one who has set them apart from eternity past. Dear Christian who is lamenting, tormented, agonizing over what the next day, what the next week, what the next month, what the next eight months may hold, 
Your greatest solution is not to try to look in the forecasts and find answers that will satisfy you or make, things go, make the temperature of your heart go down a little. Your greatest solution is to look to the past and see the love of God set upon you in eternity past when out of no merit of your own, He set His love upon you in His electing grace. And then to look forward a little further, but still very much in our past, and see the Lord Jesus Christ who came, who gave His life as a ransom for our sins. And so what the church in Thessalonica needed, and what you and I need this day as well, is amidst all that we might worry about or fear or might wake us up at night today, we need to be reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ who came with the resolve by which knowing He would give His life for us, He will return for us again. He did not come and purchase us by His blood that He may forget to pick us up on the delivery date. And what we see is we see the centrality of this importance for the church. If we were to bounce back to verses 1-12 through and you were to look at verse 8, We have no identity of the lawless one, but we do have the identity of the conquering one. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. So to this He called us through His Gospel. Look at the end of verse 14. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your rickety, aging body, you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so then, what do we do? Verse 15, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Continue to revisit the Gospel, the Word of God, over and over and over and over again. Why? Because we need it over and over and over again. We leave church reminded of the conquering King, Jesus, of whom we wait. In the next six days, they will try to derail us. They will try to uh, 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 wear us out try to present things that were unknown to us even now that will bring worry upon us as we go until we gather again together with the body to be reminded of the hope and the need for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we gather together to pray in prayer meetings. This is why we're going to have a how to study the Bible, uh, Bible class. This is why we gather together in fellowship and potlucks. This is why we gather in our growth groups. This is why we do all of these things to help one another to plan and to prepare well for the coming of Christ. He does not give us a test that we have to know the answers for, that you wake up one morning and you say, oh my goodness, I have to pass this test that I'm totally unprepared for. The message of the Gospel is that Jesus Himself has passed the test. That when He said, it is finished, He meant not only the work that He would do, but the demands of God that would be placed upon all who would come to Him in faith. Who would rest in the shadow of His wing. The responsibilities that they would bear are finished. 
Yet, we have the responsibility to stand fast, to not be moved, hold to the Word of God, to that which the traditions that have been laid before us, knowing, as verse 16 says, that our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, He will comfort your hearts. He will establish them in every good work and word. How often do we fail to believe or fail to remember the promises that are ours in Christ and in His Gospel? We awaken and the test lays before us. And we hurriedly look for a pencil. We hurriedly look for something that can give us answers that we might be able to pass muster on the test. No, the answer is God will complete His purposes and His work in us. No, for the Christian, we need to constantly not be reminded of all that lies before us. But we need to be reminded of Christ who has passed the test in our place. And Christ who will return and prove triumphant so that any test we face will melt away in His presence. This is our hope as Christians. If you do not know Christ and you are with us, whether as a friend of Becca's, or just life has brought you in our doors today, we yearn and we pray that you would know this hope of Christ. It is available to you. It is not something that you clean yourself up for and then come to Him. It is something that you come to Him and He does the cleaning. He does the work. So if that is your, the lot that you are in, the place where you find yourself, I would even love to speak with you after our service today that you may know the King of whom we await, that you may have the scales lifted off your eyes, that you may see and savor Jesus Christ, and that you may hear this warning to not refuse to love the truth, to not be deluded by what is false, to not receive condemnation because you ignored and did not believe the truth, but you pleasured in unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. Christ, we do not have to fear the test that lays ahead. He has passed it. Let us set our eyes on Him and our hearts rest in Him. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us to not be moved. Help us to not be impatient. And help us to not be deceived. All of these by our hearts satisfied in and resting in our King Jesus. It is in His name that we pray, and it is to Him that we cling, and in Him that we hope. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.